This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're joining us for the first time, in the next hour we'll be discussing the only book God ever wrote, the Holy Bible, just 66 books to it, no more than that, no less than that. And so if you have a particular question as you've been studying Scripture that you would like to discuss or an issue that you'd like biblical counsel on, if we can help, as Rick just gave those numbers, locally it's 525-1859. 525-1859, area code 843. Our toll-free number is 877. The call letters WAGP980. Or as many people do every week, they email us here directly into the studio at TBL for the Bible line, tbl at net. When you call, you can dictate your question if you're more comfortable or if you would like. Uh, we always give preference to live callers. You can go on the air live. So, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started today. I think we have a caller maybe waiting. Well, actually, we don't yet. Okay. They're dictating right. their question. That's fine. Uh, but I did want to remind our listeners that they can at any time go back to our website at net and listen to this or other previous programs of the Bible line. And one of the nice features is that uh, if we've covered a particular topic, uh, there's a search field and they can just type that in like divorce and it'll show every uh, program where we've ever had any mention of that. That's great. We did have a question that was left over from last week. Does uh, Do you believe that we are in the last days given the persecution of Christians, uh, natural disasters, evil governments, etc.? Of course, no one knows the time, but are most of the signs there? Well, uh, the last days in a technical sense, according to Acts chapter 2, began on the day of Pentecost. And so when Peter stood up and the miracle that had taken place as the 120 spilled out of the upper room uh, and people witnessed and saw what had taken place that day, this incredible loud noise like the sound of a rushing wind, but there was no wind, which of course grabbed everyone's attention. It would be like a... 787 cranking its engines up in the first century. What's that? And thousands came to see. And of course, that's when the 120 came out and people began to speak languages that were previously unlearned. 15 different languages are recorded. Also accompanied with that was a literal, physical, actual tongue that sat above them. Um, So it was a unique time. You, you could no longer, no more really reduplicate that than you could reduplicate Bethlehem or Calvary. It was a special day. And of course, when people saw these folks speaking as they did, some said, well, they're drunk. Peter says, they're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. in the morning. And he said, this is what the prophet Joel said would take place in the last days. So the Bible speaks of the last days beginning with the day of Pentecost. And I think that's significant because the scripture really teaches the imminent return of the Lord Jesus. 
that there's nothing prophetically that has to happen for Christ to come back. He could have come back, um, you know, in the second century or the third century if he wanted to. And then any remaining prophecies that need to be fulfilled would be fulfilled during the time of the Great Tribulation period. Uh, There are all kinds of prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for the second coming of Christ, but there is no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for the rapture of the church. However, when you see prophecy being fulfilled for the second coming, then that should cause you to look up and think and and realize, well, that must mean that the uh, rapture of the church is that much closer because the rapture, of course, precedes the second coming of Christ. And so we are seeing prophecy fulfilled. Uh, There was some things that would have to have happened before the second coming to take place. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD and the Jews were dispersed as a nation. From 70 AD until 1948, they did not exist as a nation. But then they became a nation, the rebirth of Israel. And that was very significant because Again, uh, there's much prophecy that has to take place in and around the people of Israel for the second coming of Jesus to happen. Uh, So that was hugely significant. And it was something that pastors had preached for hundreds of years and were laughed and mocked at by many people because Israel had been dispersed since 70 AD. But they knew it would happen. Uh, The fact that God prophesied through Jeremiah, for instance, that Uh, the Jews would be gathered from the north and brought back into the land. Uh, When communism fell in the early 1990s, uh, all these Jewish people over the next 10, 15 years just felt this almost internal call, as they described it, to come back to the land of Israel. And over 2 million former Soviet Jews have migrated back into Israel. That's significant. Remember, there's only 15 million Jewish people on the whole earth. And over 2 million just from the former Soviet countries. Now we have, you know, Ethiopian Jews coming from North Africa. And and God is setting the stage. Uh, Certainly there's a number of things that are happening morally. Uh, The moral decadence of our day is a prophecy being fulfilled. When the Bible speaks of the last of the last days, for instance, in 2 Timothy 3, the apostle said to Timothy, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. So he's speaking about a time in the last days that will come where men will be typified by way of life by these characteristics, lovers of money, children, for instance, who are disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, uh, unholy, unloving irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Uh, They may be religious, they hold to a form of godliness, but they've denied the power of the gospel, Paul tells us. And so men will be, um, you know, unholy, unloving. Actually, it says without natural love is literally the way the Greek text teaches it. And again, I think that's significant because the natural love that you would expect to see often between parents and children 
are is diminishing. The natural love that you would expect to see between a man and a woman is being questioned by the homosexual movement. So there are many things that are happening. You know, um, the electronics that are unfolding. Now there is a city in Washington state where you have the option, if you want to buy something, you just put your finger, your fingerprint on many, many stores in that particular town. And when you do that, it reads everything about your bank statements and you can buy and sell anything that you want. Now, is that necessary for a one-world type of control? Well, not absolutely. I I suppose uh, men could have had a tattoo in the first century, and maybe the mark of the beast will be a tattoo. But all you need, what, what I'm trying to say is that there's the electronics are in place for this to happen. Um, the Bible speaks in the revelation of two witnesses who are going to come and how they are going to be murdered during the time of the Great Tribulation. And the entire world will see these two dead bodies laying in the streets of Jerusalem and they'll party. They will rejoice over the fact that these two prophets of God are dead. Now, how would they have seen that had the rapture taken place in the second century? I don't know. Maybe God would have put it on a cloud. Uh, But the fact that we have satellite communication, worldwide TV, is not accidental. Uh, It's what the Bible predicts. Uh, Daniel, the prophet, speaks of the fact that knowledge will increase in the last of the last days. There'll be a super explosion of knowledge. We're seeing that in our day with the invention of the Internet and computers and all that has happened where we've gone from basically from the first 1900 years of uh, since the start of the church, very little change in terms of, uh, you know, travel. Men still used horses and wagons and everything else. But, you know, we went from Kitty Hawk to putting a man on the moon in 60 years, and then we've progressed even further in the next 50. So it's absolutely amazing the uh, prophecy that Daniel speaks of that we see being fulfilled. Again, there's nothing that has to happen for the rapture. It could happen today. But as you see, God's setting the table plainly, clearly, as it relates to the second coming of Christ. You know, the rapture that precedes it uh, is that much closer. So, yes, no one knows the day or the hour, but the Bible does teach the fact that we can be alert to the season. And people will say, well, Christians have always said this or that about, you know, the return of Christ. Well, actually, they haven't. Most of the people who have said, you know, this is it, we're in the end, have been cultic groups and groups that don't even recognize the deity of our Lord and Savior. But here, what we're seeing, this lukewarmness, this growing sin, is exactly what God prophesied would happen in the last last days, and I believe those are the days we are in. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tvl at net. We have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for calling. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Uh, my question for Pastor Rohe is, I have read a book. It's called A Woman Rides the Beast, and I believe the author was Dave Hunt, and I wondered if he was familiar with this book and what he thinks about it. I tend to agree with a lot that the book says, but I'm certainly not anywhere near as knowledgeable as Pastor Brogy, so I would love to know if he knows of the book and what his thoughts are on the book. Well, I know Dave Hunt. In fact, I think he just recently died, if I remember correctly. Uh, he uh, 
he started a ministry about the same time I did. Um, and I had actually had the name first searched the scriptures and I contacted him on one day cause he had started his ministry in California and he entitled it search the scriptures. And I, uh, appealed to him, uh, you know, we already have been using this name for, you know, three years before you guys have, and a lot of, you know, publications and stuff. So he changed the title of his ministry to searching the scriptures daily, which I appreciated of him. He's a solid uh, evangelical believer, has been. Again, I think he just died. Um, and I would agree with a lot of the things that he says uh, concerning uh, Bible prophecy. He's uh, certainly been deeply influenced by Dallas Seminary, where I was trained under probably the foremost uh, Bible prophecy teacher in the last uh, hundred plus years, J. Dwight Pentecost, who actually is still alive. He's 98 years old and he's still teaching at Dallas Seminary. He shuffles to class and uh, still teaches a couple of classes a week. He's really an amazing man. He wrote a classic work called Things to Come. And really, most of the Bible teachers that, you know, deal with the subject of prophecy have been influenced by Dr. Pentecost's work. It was actually his Ph.D. dissertation at Dallas Seminary, put into book form in 1958, but it's still a classic work. And I would uh, suggest uh, people reading that because it will help you to really understand all the various positions that people have uh, held on to regarding the millennium, regarding the catching up of the church or the rapture, and it will give you some theological grounding so that you're not easily swayed by some popular written books uh, that, you know, make certain things uh, a fulfillment of Bible prophecy that may indeed um, might indeed not be. But again, this is his book is, is based on a chapter in the book of Revelation. It's the 17th chapter where, you know, God describes a woman on a beast. And uh, that that's a whole sermon in itself. I've preached that chapter in my end time series uh, called Eschatology or the Doctrine of the Last Things. I spent 52 Wednesday nights about 10 or 11 years ago. Uh, preaching what the Bible says about the last days and went through all the various positions and laid a foundation. And towards the end of the course, I went from uh, Revelation 4 all the way through the end of the Revelation. Again, just the highlights. I hope to actually teach verse by verse uh, the Revelation uh, sometime here in the next couple of years if God uh, gives me uh, the uh, ability to do that and if we're still here. So appreciate that question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Uh, Caller had a comment, by the way. They uh, said, during this Pastor Appreciation Month, she wanted to be sure to thank you uh, for being her pastor and for teaching her that the Lord comes first in her life. She prays that the Lord will bless you and continue to give you the strength to preach without compromise. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I appreciate those who do really, truly intercede for me and for the ministry God's entrusted. Kelvin from Lancaster, New Hampshire writes, is it ever right to take someone to court? My father recently passed away without leaving a will. He remarried a year and a half before he passed and his wife lives on the land he owned. According to the law, his three sons are entitled to a portion of the land. We, the sons, have tried repeatedly to get his wife to speak to us about settling the estate legally, but she refuses to do so and simply wants us to leave all the land to her without compensation. Because she refuses to work this out with us, our lawyer has recommended filing a suit of uh, partition 
in order to force the issue to be legally settled. I understand the Bible addresses not suing a fellow Christian in 1 Corinthians, but I'm not convinced that she is a believer. Is it best for us to just walk away from this, or is it permissible for a Christian to go to court over matters such as these? Well, uh, this this is a good question, and there is a, a central text in the New Testament that helps us to understand some of the disputes. Uh, and, of course, this text of Scripture is dealing with uh, believers and how they deal with other believers. And so God is uh, very, very clear here in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. And so he said that, is there not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? And so he said, this is actually uh, to your shame, and it's a defeat for you, and certainly for our testimony in the cause of Christ. So when Christians deal with Christians, God's word is plainly clear. So if you have a dispute against a brother, some legal uh, issue that you're facing, or some way in which you have been mistreated, then the way to solve it is indeed by going to the leadership of the church. Many times um, we as an elder board have dealt with uh, problems that people have had. Sometimes sometimes people from the outside have come to us and said, uh, listen, I'm a Christian and I know it's wrong to take a fellow brother to court, and there's a member who, you know, owes me money or he's done such and such. And we'll say, well, you know, then you come before us and we'll, we'll help decide and adjudicate in this matter. And that's the way it should be handled. And we've done this many, many times. And sometimes, of course, the person from the outside has been totally wrong. You know, the Bible says a, a matter seems just uh, until you hear the full story. Uh, that's a par- paraphrase of what Proverbs teaches. A man's case seems just until another comes and examines it. In other words, there's there's two sides to every story, so to speak. And sometimes, you know, you hear one side and you think, oh, that's awful. What a, what a terrible person. And then you actually get the uh, full story. And so Proverbs eighteen seventeen tells us to make sure we have all the facts and the full story. And I don't really have all the facts before me. Uh, concerning this caller from New Hampshire. But I would say this. First and foremost, you should be more concerned for her soul than you should be over a piece of property. And have you prayed for her? Have you tried to win her to Christ? Have you cared for her spiritually? Or has your only interest been um, a piece of property that you and your two brothers are supposed to share? Certainly, I'm assuming you've prayed for it. But sometimes I've asked people, have you earnestly prayed about this and maybe even prayed and fasted and brought this issue before God so that he would be your defender? Because Jesus actually tells a parable of a widow who wears this judge out over and over and over again. And finally, the judge basically says, no, I've had enough. I, I can't take this lady anymore. And he gives her what he wants. 
And of course, Jesus makes this statement in application for us. He says, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. And then he asks a very profound question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And one expression of faith is believing God in prayer, that God hears and wants and listens to our prayers. And so sometimes I've asked people, well, have you really prayed about it? And here, this is an issue of justice. And that's what the actual parable in Luke 18 is built on. Have you really prayed about it? Um, and sought God on it because God cares about such matters. Uh, Another thing that I would say to you uh, is, have you sought counsel with wise, godly people who have heard the full set of facts and have heard the whole story? And so, again, in, in the book of Proverbs, it tells us with many counselors, plans succeed. Without consultation, Solomon writes, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. So Proverbs habitually uh, echoes that truth about wisdom found in multiple counselors by godly, not foolish people. So I hope you've done that. Um, If this person uh, is a believer, then you deal with them on that level. Matthew 18 says, if you go and you approach your brother and he doesn't listen, then you take two or three. Why? Because by the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything is to be confirmed. And then if he doesn't listen, you bring it to the church. And then if he doesn't listen, you treat him as a tax collector, as an unbeliever. So there can be a time, certainly, to use the legal system. Paul appealed to the legal system throughout Acts. There's a, I think there was four examples, 16, 18, 20, and 25. Um, but if you go back through the Acts, it becomes apparent that Paul appealed to the uh, court system when he needed to as a Roman citizen. So God's not opposed to the legal system. But when we're dealing with someone who is a believer, then God says, let believers deal with it. And I'd rather lose my piece of land if this were a believer. Uh, But again, there can be a place even for believers to use the legal system where you've gone through the whole process and the person by their unwillingness to respond even to the final testimony and call of a local assembly where they're treated as an unbeliever. And so if they're treated as an unbeliever, then there might be a a case and wisdom would dictate it to then pursue maybe some legal action against the person. So again, without having all the facts, that would be just some general overarching principles that I would share with you. Very good. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. And we had a caller who dictated their question. They would like you to explain the difference between our soul and our spirit. Well, sometimes uh, you will meet Christians who will describe the immaterial portion of man uh, simply as the soul. And certainly that can be legitimate because sometimes the Bible describes man in the immaterial portion of man. It was interesting because I was discussing this with my grandsons just uh, just on Sunday evening about what happens when someone dies and how we have our body because I'm doing a funeral this week. And they were asking me, well, exactly where is this person? They're in heaven, right? And 
And my other son, my other grandson said, now, did their body go to heaven too? I said, no, their body's still here. And, and that body's going to be planted in the grave this week. But the person inside the body, the real you, so to speak, that walks around in this uh, earthly space suit goes home to be with the Lord. And so sometimes we describe in a broad sense, as the Old Testament repeatedly does, the soul as the immaterial portion of man. And so even the Lord Jesus will say, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? So there the Lord Jesus is referring to the immaterial portion of man. But in a technical sense, the Bible describes us as a three-part being. Now may the God of peace, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus. So here Paul speaks of our spirit, our soul, and our body. And again, in the book of Hebrews and in chapter 4, when he describes the power of God's word, he makes a profound statement where he says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That the word of God uh, can divide between soul and spirit. The fact that the soul and spirit are divisible, can be separated, so to speak, tells me that they are not the same as Paul teaches in First Thessalonians 5. So, so in a broad sense, you can describe the immaterial man as having a soul. But in a technical theological sense, as the Bible sometimes does, it speaks of our body, soul, and spirit. And so every believer and unbeliever has obviously a body. He has a soul, which in the technical sense is used to describe the mind, will, and the emotions, where the spirit is that portion of man that is dead. So man has a soul, which makes him distinctly different from the uh, animal world. He's made in the image and likeness of God with the ability to reason and make decisions and uh, have choices and so forth. And when we're born again, our spirit is made alive. And so it's kind of interesting what happened at the fall of man Uh, the day man sinned, God said he would die. And so his spirit was immediately extinguished. He, he died in his spirit, just as God said, he obviously didn't die immediately in his body, though he did die immediately. As God said, for the day that you eat from the tree, you shall surely die. He died on the inside in his spirit, his soul, his mind, will, and emotions progressively corrupts. And you see that progression of corruption even in the early chapters of Genesis where they come to the point where their thoughts are habitually or continually evil and God brings the great flood. And then, indeed, Adam ultimately died in his body. And so what happened at the fall is reversed through the plan of redemption Man is immediately quickened in his spirit on the inside. He's made alive. His uh, spirit is declared righteous. Uh, His soul, his mind, will, and emotions are sanctified. They are being changed moment by moment by moment and transformed. And ultimately, his body will be uh, redeemed and 
in a resurrected body prepared for heaven. So what took place at the fall is reversed through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's just kind of a quick, broad, general answer. But I have a sermon on this. And if you want to uh, go to our series in Romans, we're working chapter by chapter and verse by verse uh, through what many have called the Constitution of Christianity. And we are right now in Romans chapter 5. And so if you begin listening to some of the messages beginning in Romans 5 and verse 12, uh, I deal with the mind, will, the emotions, suke, the soul. The Greek word is suke. We got our word psychology from it and the spirit and the body and how all three interface and interrelate. It's a good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Good uh, morning. Thanks for holding. And you are on the Bible line. Hi. Um, in our current Bible study, we came across the passage in Numbers where the children of Israel have came to the promised land. And God had told them before they arrived that all age 20 and above would die. And we couldn't figure out, couldn't find what the significance of 20 years old was. That's a great question. I mean, obviously, it's not an arbitrary number in God's mind. Uh, He is the one who selected it. Now, he doesn't tell us why uh, he selected the age 20. And, of course, everyone 20 and above died in the wilderness with the exception of two people, namely Joshua and Caleb, who, because they believed God, uh, when this land was spied out there at Kadesh Barnea, Uh, they were able to enter into the land of promise. So there was a certain, you know, when I was a child, uh, my mom always used to say, well, when you're 21 years old, you can do whatever you want to do. Uh, Because when I was a boy, 21 was kind of the magic age where you were considered a man. Uh, It began to change when I was in high school. There was a a movement uh, called 18 by 74, And the whole rationale was, well, if young men can fight at the age of 18, uh, they ought to be able to vote at the age of 18. And so the voting age changed from 21 to 18. And so some said, well, people become a man at 18. Uh, Certainly, uh, in God's mind, they are adults and they're men by the age of 20. So if I were to use a, 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 a number to say manhood has arrived, I would say it's, or, or womanhood has arrived, it would, it would be the age of 20. I think what has been misapplied more than anything else is what people have done with that. Some have said, well, the age of accountability is 20 years of age. And so when someone reaches 20 years of age, they are accountable. And if someone is 19 or below, they're unaccountable. That would be a very foolish application from that text of Scripture. Uh, because clearly God's Word teaches that um, people can be accountable long before that. God doesn't give us a specific age. Some have said it's 12 because Jesus was in the uh, temple reasoning spiritual truth and uh, demonstrating his uh, superior knowledge of the scriptures, even over the Pharisees and the teachers of the day. Uh, But God doesn't give us an age, and in wisdom he doesn't. If he said it was 12, some parents wouldn't get serious with their kids until they were 11. I think it's different for different people. And God, in his wisdom and love and care and providence and justice and mercy, knows at what moment someone becomes accountable such that if they have not believed on the Lord Jesus as their Savior, 
and they die that they they are, are eternally lost. So beyond that, uh, in terms of the significance of 20, uh, I, I don't want to go beyond what the scriptures say. So what you guys actually found, I think, was significant. I think the bigger question is maybe some of the misapplications that are made from that. Anyway, I appreciate that question. It's a good one. There are that Bible study they're in is obviously thinking and looking and examining the scriptures carefully, and I, I always appreciate that as a pastor. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or you can email us at tbl at net. And a reminder that if you uh, have any questions that you asked but didn't have a chance to listen to or you'd like to hear an answer again, you can always go to net, our website, where you'll find past programs of the Bible. And what's really neat, Rick, the way you do that, because um, sometimes people have said, well, I want to hear, but I'm at work during that time. And I tell them, well, listen, you can call in their qu- your question or you can email it to Rick and he'll bring it up on the screen that morning. And then uh, you're emailed back saying your question was, was answered. And you go to that particular day, because sometimes we get so many emails in here, we can't even begin to answer all the questions. And so, um, but when it's emailed in and we write you back, then you can say, oh, your question was answered, you know, on such and such a day. And, and you go and click on the Bible line for that day. Rick has all the questions that were answered that day. And you can say, oh, mine is the sixth question. Um, and you can click on and kind of scan through the bar until you find your question answered without necessarily having to listen to the entire Bible line for an hour. So anyway, go to the next question. I think it's been emailed. Is that right? It was actually dictated. Okay, someone called and dictated. Obviously, they were listening to you on Sunday, either in person or via the Internet. And they asked, how do you think people, i.e. leaders, etc., will explain the disappearance of all the Christians at the rapture? Like the demonstration you gave of surgeries will stop in mid-surgery, pilots will disappear from cockpits, etc., uh, you know, it's a great question, and we can speculate. Uh, some have said, you know, aliens from former planets who couldn't stand these Christians, you know, they'll come and they'll sweep us away, and who, who knows how they're going to explain it. I think what is going to happen is that the world will be so overwhelmed with the chaos that has ensued with millions of people missing and all the accidents and tragedies that have come with that that their first and foremost focus is going to be with how do we solve these problems? What can we do? And just like our country rallied together around a, a small, small event, comparatively speaking, 9-11, because when you take the Great Tribulation period and you read Revelation 4 through 18 in the 19th chapter, Jesus' second coming takes place, the events that take place are 9-11s multiplied by 10,000. The tragedy is so huge and so great, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. It's like a rheostat being turned up, and the wrath of God just increases, and it magnifies, and it gets worse and worse and worse. And so the tragedy brings a world leader on the scene. And again, you can you can see how some of the seeds are there. You know, we're setting ourselves up as a nation for a total economic disaster. You know, I was just reading again just last week how student loans, you know, we talk about we're $17 trillion in debt. We're not talking about the trillion dollars, say, 
that students owe our government who are borrowing money. And we're not talking about, you know, the IOUs and Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, and with 10,000 baby boomers a day who are um, retiring, uh, we have a huge, huge problem. If you made um, $21,000 a year, and you came to me and you said, Pastor, I made $21,000 a year, but uh, this year uh, I spent, in addition to that uh, $21,000, in credit card debt and other things I borrowed on, what do you suggest I do? I said, well, man, listen, you you got to cut your costs and you got to cut them fast or you're heading for a disaster in your home. And so you come back a week later with your plan and you say, well, Pastor, I cut out about $400. And so this year I'm only planning to borrow, you know, $16,600. I'm going to tell you your plan is not going to work. That's what the sequestration has done in terms of the money that they've caught. I mean, it's just almost laughable what they have done, like this is a solution. It's certainly a step in the right direction, but it's a solution to absolutely nothing. We're headed towards disaster. And I don't know if it can pursue another five years or or, or just how much longer, but I'm telling you, we are reaching a point of no return. And if the U.S. economy goes totally haywire and we reach that point, where, you know, much like in the 30s, and this is, uh, this is really replicating itself in terms of the same thing happened in places like Germany and other countries during the 1930s. And, you know, there's that famous photograph of a man who has a wheelbarrow full of money, and all he can buy is a loaf of bread. And, of course, um, in that day, it got so bad where when the uh, wheelbarrow was emptied, somebody stole the wheelbarrow because the wheelbarrow was worth more than the money was. And, you know, and that that's where we're headed. And if the United States economy falls, so won't the other economies of the world. And so it's that kind of thing that would certainly make it plausible for a one world leader to come onto the scene, uh, to be able to have a mark where you can't buy or sell anything. You know what that would do? If you couldn't buy or sell anything, and some people think we're a decade away on this, where we become a cashless society in the United States. But if you needed my fingerprint to buy or sell anything. I'm not saying that's necessarily evil. What would be evil is if somehow you can ascribe a 666 to the hand or the forehead, however that's done. Um, But it would eliminate all financial fraud in this country. All drug trafficking would become meaningless except through a barter system because you would need cash to be able to buy your drugs. And if you don't have cash and you need a fingerprint system, all the taxes that are swept under the rug that people aren't paying, all you know, it would solve a lot of problems for the economy and it would certainly bring the, the world together. So um, the stage is being set. God knows um, I can sit here and make some guesses, but it's going to happen because God's word teaches it's going to happen. You you saw the latest Apple iPhone release. No, I didn't. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, you, you just use your finger to, uh, and it scans your finger and yeah. then it releases and it will send your credit card information or whatever else to whatever vendor you like. Well, we're we're coming more and more to that, and uh, it, we're we're not far away. And so Christians need to be alert. But there's a prophetic apathy of, in our day. I mean, there are prophetic agnostics in evangelicalism who don't think it's any big deal, and they're just like asleep. 
And we need to wake up because, I mean, things are moving so fast. And the spirit of Antichrist is already already beginning to raise its ugly head. It was at work in the first century. But remember, God, the Holy Spirit, the restrainer is going to loose his hand totally when we come to the great tribulation period. But I think we're in the shadows of that period. And as, uh, and we'll speak more about these events and things that will happen uh, this coming Sunday at Community Bible Church. We're meeting as one church both in Bluffton. So if you're listening and you're in Hardyville or Hilton Head in Bluffton, you don't feel like driving all the way to Buford, come to our campus. It's right next to the BMW dealership there on Highway 170 or come to our campus here in Buford on Paris Island Gateway. All right, our next listener asks, after the ascension, the Bible references that Jesus was seated at the right hand of God the Father, Ephesians 1.20. Uh, then when Stephen was stoned in Acts 7.54, he looked up and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Is it significant that Jesus was seated or standing? I do think it's significant. It's the first record in Scripture where Jesus gets up off the throne Uh, because one of his saints is being martyred. In fact, he's the first New Covenant saint who is martyred for the faith, Stephen. And so it's almost like the Lord Jesus is underscoring the significance of his life, of his uh, willingness to stand even to the point of death for the truth. And so he preaches a sermon that basically he knows they don't want to hear, but he knows they need to hear it. And thank God he preached it because they were standing there that day next to the robes of those who are casting the stones to give their uh, shoulders a little more freedom to hurl the stone with greater strength. A man named Saul of Tarsus who heard that sermon. And of course, the Lord Jesus, when he has the encounter with Saul of Tarsus, They're on the Damascus Road, and it's recorded in three places in the Acts of the Apostles. But in one place, when Paul is giving his testimony, he gives us some insight that we're not given in the original encounter, as it's described in Acts 9, where Jesus says, it's difficult for you to resist the goads. A goad is like a goad stick that you would use on an animal. And so Jesus is describing the goad sticks that had been prodding the Apostle Paul's life, and certainly included in that, was this man, this deacon, this man who is filled with the Spirit and filled with wisdom, the Bible says, who gave one of the most magnificent sermons in all of the Bible, where he recounts all of Israel's history. In fact, I often tell people, if you are new to the Bible and you want to get a feel for the major events of the Scripture that you need to know, then study Acts chapter 7, because he sweeps through the entire Old Testament. And I have, of course, a very in-depth sermon on that passage. And if you're interested, you can go to searchthescriptures.org and click on Acts 7. And I'm not sure how many sermons I preached on that, but I work through, as I do when I go through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, that whole sermon. And it will give you a, a sweeping view of the entire Old Testament and the critical events. Paul heard that that day. And he is reasoning from the scriptures like Paul himself will later do after he's converted and he goes to different places and towns and enters the synagogue, bringing the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He will reason from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And that's what Stephen did that day. And it seemed like to no avail because he ended up being stoned. 
but it did affect one man's life who became one of the greatest Christians, probably the greatest Christian in the history of the church, uh, the Apostle Paul. So Jesus stood up. You see him standing up later, of course, in the Revelation when he is given the scroll in the great judgments come upon the earth. It's a, it's an incredible sight. Anyway, let's go to the next question. Good question. All right. Our next listener uh, dictated in Zechariah 4, the question is asked about the lampstands and the two olive trees. Yes. This, uh, this caller would like you to explain what the two olive trees represent. Well, the book of Zechariah is a fascinating little book because it deals with really two avenues of prophecy, some uh, short-term prophecy that indeed, um, you know, pictures things that are going to happen in Zechariah the prophet's day, but it also deals with uh, some future long-term prophecy. Now, to really answer your question properly, it would take me a good hour because what he does here in this portion of the prophecy is he takes some of the temple furniture and he shares really the significance of it and gives you a picture of what is yet going to happen in the future. And then he has some articles here that are unique, like the flying scroll and the four chariots and the symbolic crowns and so forth that uh, you don't find in the tabernacle or the temple, but indeed are a, a picture of future events that are yet to come. And so this man is what we call a post-exilic prophet. And of course, whenever you're reading the Old Testament scriptures, you need to realize that the major and the minor prophets, and they're called major and minor as such, not because some are more important than others, but because uh, some material is broader and longer than others. So like, for instance, the prophet Isaiah Uh, the length of his book is longer than all what we call the minor prophets. That's a designation. Some would see it unfortunate from the fourth century onward. Some would see it as an unfortunate designation uh, because indeed um, some have assumed, well, they're not as important, so they're minor prophets. But they gave it that designation based on the length of the material that was given. So Zechariah, uh, is a post-exilic prophet. So whenever you look at the major amount of prophets, to help you to understand it, you want to ask yourself, did this person preach before the exile? Are they a pre-exilic prophet? And so you have prophets who, uh, and you could even ask, are they preaching during the time of the United Kingdom? So there are some prophets in the Old Testament who preach just during the time the whole kingdom is united. Uh, and you'll find some of them, uh, in, like Samuel and and so forth. Um But there comes a point in Israel's history where the kingdom divides into 10 northern tribes and two southern tribes. There are some who preach before the exile of the 10 northern tribes, before they're carried away by the Assyrians. There are some who preach to the two southern tribes. There are some who preach to both. There are some who are contemporaries of one another. There are some who preach just during the time of the exile that the two southern tribes preach. There's only two of them, Daniel and uh, Ezekiel. And then there are some who preach after the exile, the 70-year exile is over. And those are called post-exilic prophets. And so that's Zechariah. And so when you have that in mind, it really opens up the prophet Zechariah for you because you, you recognize, well, these are people who have come back from the exile. They're back into the land. 
and he's giving them, you know, an exhortation to live a godly life. And to do that, he does what the New Testament often does. When God speaks of prophecy in the New Covenant, referring to the return of his son from heaven, in almost every single text of the New Testament, there is an accompanying exhortation as to how we should live. What should this prophecy mean for us? What does it specifically mean for us? And so um, God gives prophecy to change your life. And that's what he was doing with these Jews. Though there are some things that look all the way down to the second coming of Christ. Like when you come to the 14th chapter, he will say the Lord will go forth and will fight against those nations as when he fights a battle on a day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will split in the middle. Uh, that's looking all the way down to the end of the age when Jesus comes back. Now, when you come here, and he says here in Zechariah 4 and verse 3, he speaks of the two olive trees. Uh, let, let me just read it. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And he said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold. And its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps, which are on top of it. Also, two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl, and the other on its left side. Then I answered and said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And so the lampstands that you find in scripture often become a symbol of God, the Holy Spirit. So even the um, the lampstand that was in the tabernacle and later in the temple and it was a seven piece lampstand and right in the middle was a certain uh, bowl that was to be continually lit and it was never to go out and it was part of the daily priestly responsibility that the Levites had to attend to. It was in the uh, not the most holy place the holy of holies but the holy place and there like here it is a symbol of God the Holy Spirit. He is likened to fire, to water, and one of the images that is used in the Bible is that of oil. And if you went into the holy place, it was dark. And so the light that would come would be from indeed the uh, the, the golden lampstand that was in the tabernacle, which was a tent-like structure that would later become a more permanent structure, namely in the temple. And so the oil, of course, Jesus is the light of the world. The members of the Trinity cannot be dissected. They are inseparable. And so the Bible speaks of us not only receiving the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit of Christ. Jesus can say, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And so in the coming of the Spirit, you have the coming or the indwelling of Christ as well. In fact, the Bible affirms that we're indwelt not only by God the Holy Spirit, but also God the Son and God the Father. All three members of the Trinity are affirmed as indwelling us, but certainly accent to that ministry is given on the Spirit. But here the oil is pictured in these lampstands, and it is a reminder 
not by man's strength, not by man's power, but by the Spirit, saith the Lord. Great question. I I wish I could spend a lot more time on that. Like I say, it would take me an hour to do it justice, but I just want to hit a couple of highlights that will get you started in your study. All right. I think we've got time for one last question. Uh, oh, actually, it appears to be a live caller. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Pastor Brody, with the recent comments by the current pope, his, his permissiveness and what seems to be the general evil that is seems to have taken over the churches of the United States and around the world. I, I don't know. It just it just seems to me that, as, as you've been speaking about on Sunday and, and will continue, that we are in the end times. I mean, it just, it's so discouraging to see Christians and Catholics and other religions give in to what just just the lack of morals and, and just the general evil. Yeah, that, that I, 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 I hear you, brother. Um, you know, the last pope, Benedict said, he made, I thought, a very profound statement that I agreed with where he he said, listen, I would much have a much smaller, leaner church, even if we are abandoned by millions of people and hold to the truth. Now, what he meant by truth might be debatable, but that's a biblical principle. God has always had his remnant, even in the worst times of human history, because uh, there were people who embraced the truth and didn't care what the rest of society did. This pope has taken a much different stance where he wants to be far more inclusive, even at the expense of the truth. So he makes a statement where he says, well, atheists can go to heaven as long as they follow their conscience, as long as they follow the dictates of their heart. Well, man's conscience can be deeply warped. It can be a, a bad conscience. It can be an evil conscience. Uh, it can be a callous conscience. It can be a seared conscience. So what do you mean, follow your conscience? Um, not to mention that your conscience ultimately should lead you to Christ. That's God's desire, and he's the way of salvation, not following our conscience. And then he made an incredible statement in this most extensive interview that I didn't even cover on Sunday, where he opened the door, not totally, but began to crack it, and it will be only time will tell fully what he meant, so I don't want to judge him unfairly, but basically in reference to homosexuality, he says, who am I to judge? Well, you know, you are to judge. You're to judge with truth. And when God has made a judgment, we are to stand with that judgment. If God has judged and deemed in his word, that homosexuality, like adultery and fornication and bestiality and other things are sin, then then we should agree with that, and we should make judgments with God. So while the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged, Jesus also said in John 7, judge with righteous judgment. So there is a place for judgment. We're out of time. The phone's still ringing. Sorry we didn't get to many questions that came in, but there'll be another Tuesday, Lord willing. Have a great day. 